Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When I was a kid, my dad was a cop. And we spent five seasons of Loose Units, the podcast, talking through his cases, but the unexplained and the paranormal kept rearing their heads. So this season, we're going to take a look at hauntings, ghost stories, and the crimes behind them. Because the story doesn't end when the killing is done. Welcome to Loose Units, The Shadow Files. In 1984, on October the 15th, Bevan Spencer von Einem went on trial. But in order to figure out exactly what happened there, we're going to zip back a little bit, because at this point in our look at the family, Bevan von Einem has been investigated somewhat, but the case in DeMille House fell apart due to too much circumstantial evidence. So this time the police really wanted to make sure they had their facts straight. Last episode, Dad, we talked about the fact that von Einem was, he was, you know, capable of giving out prescriptions for Mandrax, Yeah. So at this point, they started really kind of digging their feet in, investigating as much as they could, and they started, I believe they went with the most recent crime to happen, and that's Richard Kelvin, the 15-year-old who disappeared in June 1983. I think what they thought was, look, this is pretty recent, and it's much easier to remember where you were, right, and what you were doing, mm. uh, if it's recent, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to make more sense. Um, Von Einem said that he was sick at the time and mm. that he was taking some time off work. Obviously, there's no real way of corroborating that. I know he lived with his mother and she was out a lot. So he kind of had an excuse. He had one doctor's appointment in the week that he'd taken off for this cold. And mm. there's a lot of time around that that you know gives him time to do all kinds of things. Mm. Mm. Um, so at this point, you've got a guy who you're trying to nail down and mm. he prescribes a drug that's been found in the system of the most recent victim. And, mm. uh, it's, you know, he's also prescribed Rehypnol, which, as everyone knows, that's a, you know, it's a date rape drug. At this point, Dad, if you're the police, what are you looking for? Look, Paul, he was already a suspect in three of the previous murders. So it's not as though he just came to their attention at this point in time. Mm. He was, um, and it's a, a, a relatively small you know, it's not, it's not a town. Um, it's a city. Adelaide, you mean, yeah. Adelaide, but but small by, say, comparison to Melbourne and Sydney. And uh, the police would have a very good sense. Um, you know, they'd go to a particular crime. Any good police officer would already have a series of, you know, suspects. 
and then it's their job to eliminate. But because of the seriousness of this crime, this being the the fifth victim, although we now know that it could be as many as 150 mm. uh, victims, yeah, um, they went to Van Einen's house. And, uh, you know, when the police knocked on his door to inquire whether they just sort of said, look, do you mind if we ask you a few questions? His immediate response was to say, I'm not going to talk to you unless I can talk to my lawyer. Now, believe you me, Paul, if you're a police officer and you rock up to someone's house, you're affable, friendly, you just want to have a chat, and the person that opens the door immediately says, I want a lawyer, not even knowing what the police are going to ask him. That, to me, is incredibly suspicious. Because it takes the level. It's not like a traffic matter, you know. Oh, we believe... Because Von Einem doesn't actually know what the police are there for. But, well, he really does, of course. Because he ultimately is a psychopathic fucker. And he knows that. So imagine if you are this person and the police knock on your door, the first thing... Well, you're going to shit yourself, aren't you? Mm. Literally. So that was that was kind of a weird thing to say to the police. And then the next thing, Paul, is that when they start to question him about the murder of Kelvin, rather than profusely denying any involvement, he simply says, <clears throat> get ready for this, he says, oh, that would be unethical. Now, that what a... That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? You, you mean in reference to these murders, to, to or, kill somebody would be unethical? Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's weird. Yeah. So you've got the first thing about wanting a lawyer, the second thing, oh, you know, saying that would be unethical. Very strange. Mm. Thing is that they, they also asked not just if they could search his house, but they asked if they could search because he had two vehicles registered to his name. And they obviously wanted to make sure that, given that vehicles played very prominently into the accounts of what was happening to the victims, i.e., you know, picked up by strange men, there's a cooler in the back seat, and they're taken to a very strange location. The last victim, um, we believe he was picked up, and there were sounds of a, you know, there were sounds of a struggle, uh, and then the sounds of a vehicle burning off. So at this point, they're thinking, look, if he's been using, you know, uh, one of these vehicles to carry out the crimes, then we want to make sure we can search those. Mm. Now, he told them that he uh, got rid of one of them. He sold one of his cars. But I believe what happened was that it was a Ford Falcon, and before he sold it, uh, he repainted the inside of the boot. So... if you a very unusual th- thing to do. In fact... <laughs> that's very mm, specific. Heard, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just, just the, yeah. Only he only he only repainted the boot. So Paul, I think we should talk about the evidence, the physical evidence that the please, forensic please. officers found. Yeah. So on the um, on the murdered young boy Kelvin, on his clothing, they found many many fibers that sort of came from Van Einen's house. They found hairs that matched those belonging to him. And they also determined that Kelvin was murdered between the 8th of July and the 10th of July, 1983, and was dumped in an airstrip no later than the 10th. So when they found all these fibres, 
what happened was they spoke to Von Einen and he he had initially denied ever seeing the young boy but then he changed his story to say that he actually had been driving along a street that night looking for he wanted to find a parking spot so he could go and buy dinner mm. he says that he saw the young boy and in his opinion and this is going to sound odd but we're dealing with someone pretty scary he actually said in his statement that he believed the young boy was bisexual which is an extraordinary thing to say and then he said that he actually did get him in the front of the car but that he'd sort of volunteered to get into the front of the car and they then began to talk and then apparently in the conversation this is according to von einem the young boy indicated that he'd been bullied at school and he was having a bit of a rough time and based on that von einen says that he then offered to drive the boy back to his house and as far as he was concerned the young boy came voluntarily but that is in direct contradiction to a number of witnesses that said they heard screams and cries for help at that same time so when you put that against the prime suspect saying that the young boy just hopped into his car because he wanted a bit of consolation is so extraordinary and it's at that point in the story that one needs to take yourself to the scene and see the events unfold where they would drag this young boy into the motor vehicle i can't see how at that point in time they drugged him it doesn't quite make sense but if there was a scream then he's not going to then sit in the car and voluntarily take have a drink well i was just thinking paul that it's in direct contradiction so we have to then assume that the boy was was manhandled and i don't know whether he would have necessarily been unconscious but once if the windows were all wound up and the car takes off ostensibly with a noisy muffler i might add then they drive off they then go back to this house of horrors and it's there that they somehow or other drug the boy but what von einem says to the police because the police had all these fibers so the alleged attacker he says that he took the young boy voluntarily into his bedroom and they sat on von einem's bed and the boy was very very sort of sad and according to von einem I heard, yes, I heard this. They had they hugged. They hugged, right? But the main problem with that, I believe, was the fact that the fibers they found dated far closer to the point at which uh, the body was found. And because he was held for about five weeks, it wouldn't make sense for those fibers to be hanging around five weeks later mm. on von Eymann's. Uh, and there were so many fibers that a, yeah. a mere mm. short cuddle, which gives me the creeps. It's so offensively disgusting and and such lies. You know this 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 creep, um, who's who's still alive. Apparently, he's now got type two diabetes, and he's been put into the wing of the hospital for the elderly prisoners. 
never ever to see the light of day. Um, Many people have tried to get information out of him, but he has denied, um, you know, committing these these terrible crimes. One thing I will say is that speaking of the means by which, you know, he got his victims back to wherever these things happened, the police got contacted by someone who wanted to remain anonymous and he was referred to as Mr. B in the case files. Mm. And once they finally kind of jumped through all these hoops and got him to agree, because basically he did not want people to know who he was. And the reason why is quite apparent. So basically, he tells the police this story about about becoming friends with Von Einem. And they would drive around and they would have a cooler in the back of the car on the back seat. And it'd be full of beers and they would pick men up, you know, young guys, mm. people hitchhiking, whatever. Uh, they go from kind of like night spot to night spot. And then they would start kind of getting these guys drunk. And then they would bring the men back uh, to to this place, but not before they kind of talked them into taking a bunch of pills. Mm. And they told them that the pills were... And we mentioned this last episode, that the pills were no-dose, which is a caffeine pill that's meant to keep you awake. Mm. Actually, they were Mandy's, mm. right? Yep. Now, if you recall, I believe last episode, or maybe even the one before, there was the uh, young guy, young hitchhiker, I think, called George, who told a story almost exactly like this one, if you recall. Mm. Um, Remember, he got taken to this weird house, and there were these women there, and so Mr. B makes exactly the same claim, Mm. um, and that he got taken to see a bunch of Einem's friends at this house, and these friends were transgender women who apparently were doing this for drugs. And then Mr. B claims that he was there for a bunch of these specific crimes, the abductions of these of these young men. But he kind of couches it very carefully and claims not to have actually taken part, mm. right? Mm. And he describes them being assaulted in the same way that, you know, in a way that kind of lines up with the injuries that were found on the dead bodies. And the police are a little bit sus because they're like, look, are you telling this story in this way just to kind of exonerate yourself? This seems fairly convenient, but I believe that it gave them a lot to go on. Mm. Um, so it really does help them kind of build the case together. They've searched this house. They've found Rehypnol. They've found a weird secret shelf. Um, Behind the, a wardrobe where they found yeah. other other similar types of medication to which Von Einem said, mm. oh, yes, well, those, um, yes, I, I rarely, rarely use those. Mm. One of the biggest problems that the offender has is that this story about the boy coming back voluntarily and them hugging in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. He says the young boy was only there for two hours and then he gave him $20 and dropped him in the heart of the city so he could get a cab or bus home, which is malarkey. Mm-hmm. But one of the more bizarre and disturbing things is, of course, A, that Von Einem said initially to the police, the very first time he was questioned about this, he said that he had been at home in bed, very ill with the flu. Now, to go from that story Mm. to a story of actually I was out driving on the prowl, on the hunt for, you know, unless, of course, on this particular occasion, it was he actually was genuinely out um, looking for a parking spot to buy dinner, which is plausible. Yeah. But then it becomes a crime of opportunity except for one small thing, and that is that he could not have been on his own. It's impossible. You can't 
get out of a car, um, grab someone, get them in the car by yourself. It can't. That, that's not how it works. The boy mm. would be. Can you imagine how the boy would be reacting? Well, as this suspect, you know, suggested, he kind of told a story about von Einem and him, you know, kind of cruising around together. It makes sense that the method would work. Mm. You know, mm. at this point. They've got him in court, right? They've got the fibers that you've mentioned mm. and they've got some testimony and they're trying to tie him to Richard Kelvin, mm. um, you know, because they've got they've got the drug link as well. And now Von Einem is admitting, you know, he's got his back against the wall. So he's admitting to have hung out with him on the night he died, but he claims to have done no wrongdoing. And that's obviously not a good look, right? I mean, kind of, you know, backpedaling that aggressively once, you, once some evidence kind of comes in against you. And as you mentioned, Einem's team basically try and paint Kelvin as a kind of bisexual, which they claim makes it more consensual than it looked like and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, on November the 5th that year, which is 1984, they find him guilty of Richard Kelvin's murder and he gets a life sentence and he gets a non-parole term of 24 years. And he is sent to, I don't know how to pronounce it, Yatala Labor Prison, which he's, like you said, he's still there now. That's one murder. Like, that's it. So at this point, are the police now trying to link him to the other murders as well? Like, what happens once they've got this guy behind bars? The case doesn't close, does it? No, well, then they try and, because of the modus operandi, um, because of the horrendous injuries to a particular part of the body, um, and the method in which these you know, were were carried out and the fact that they found these these drugs within, you know, their 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 bodies and um you know, it all looks like something that is very, very similar and that's why they then decided to try Von Eyman with the other murders. Um but it, it it you know, it unfortunately, for reasons that will forever remain unknown, uh it, it just didn't it didn't work, uh, which I find quite extraordinary. But that's why, you know, there are these people that think it is very odd because of these suppression orders. And, you know, having been a police officer in New South Wales back in the 1980s, can I just say, Paul, and I've said it before, but nothing surprises me. Nothing. Those three police officers um, that were allegedly involved with the murder, the pushing off the bridge of the British professor, those police officers were, they were charged, but they were found not guilty. And one of the things is that none of them would give any evidence. They just said nothing. And over time, they left the uh, the police force. Uh, so that's pretty horrendous. And that type of gay bashing, which was very, very common, and, you know, I witnessed things in the New South Wales Police Force back in the early 80s, things that were done to people by police officers mm. that were were scary. And we also know that, you know, North Head in Manly was a favourite place where, where, you know, people would go uh, and some of them ended up, well, one in particular was thrown off a cliff. Terrible things mm. happened. And um, it's just so... You know, look, things have changed, um, thank God. But, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the creepy things for me was that, 
in Van Einem's bedroom was a golden harp. Have you read about that? Yeah, so he had a harp in his bedroom, and I believe he claimed to have played it mm. for the final victim, uh, you know, pre or post hug. Oh, God. You know? But know. Paul and listeners, get ready for this. When he was um, found guilty and sentenced to life in prison, can you imagine, Paul, that they actually moved his golden harp into his cell? No. Did you know that? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, this kind of links to a bunch of theories that have been floating around Adelaide for a long time, and that is that he wasn't just working with people. He was working with people who were very wealthy and very influential, mm. right? I don't know how much credence there is in this because at this point the case is, I mean, you know, I don't think it was until the late 80s that people started really pushing again for information, trying to link him to the other four murders and trying mm. to figure out what was happening. I think the first reward was, oh, I, I know it ended up being about 800000 Australian dollars yeah. for information leading to a conviction. And I think later on in the 90s, there was an episode of 60 Minutes and you've already mentioned this, but the police officer working the case mentions breaking up the happy family, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then he mentions a conspiracy between uh, Von Einem and the other suspects who apparently were, yeah, very, very high up, well-connected people in the Adelaide kind of upper class. Now, at that point, it becomes sort of mythical and we don't really know mm any more than that, do we? But, but surely there were more suspects. I mean, the case 
kind of gets, you know, it, it gets people get more interested in the case again after DNA testing gets a bit more sophisticated in the late 2000s and the police start sort of, um, I think, narrowing things down to a bunch of new suspects. Is that correct? Mm. Well, what happened was one of the, the major things in his defence, because uh, his defence barrister, a guy called Mark Griffin, he immediately, once Von Einen was going to be sort of set up with the next three... Um, you know, charged with three more very, very similar murders. The defence counsel immediately claimed that it would be an abuse of justice for their client if he was ordered to stand trial given the mass media coverage of the murders during the previous year. And that is always problematic. And there are many, many famous cases of people... You've all heard that, that term trial by media. And the media sometimes get it terribly wrong. And it happened with Lindy Chamberlain. You know, she was supposed to be the daughter of the devil and because she showed no emotion. Mm. And I, I, I was alive and, and, and I was old enough to remember that, that, that very famous case with Lindy Chamberlain and, and the baby that was taken by a dingo. But as far as the media and then the public were concerned, she was guilty. Now, she has been 100% exonerated, mm. but it's actually completely for a long, long time, ruined the family's life. And you don't get that time back. So the defence in this case is saying that he has no chance of getting sort of a an impartial trial. And technically that's correct in that how on earth would you impanel a jury of 12 men and 12 or 12 men and women? Where, where would you find 12 people in Australia that were not aware of the facts regarding the the murder that he's been charged with. So, <clears throat> you know, it's it's very, very difficult. And I guess from a technical and legal perspective, that is a very valid point because, and that, Paul, is why when you go to court and you have committed some terrible crime, mm. we've, we've touched on this before, the jury are not allowed to know about previous convictions. Okay? And I'll, what and if, I'll put what this... If it pro- what if it provides some sort of context? No. I'll, I'll just put it in a nutshell for everyone to be kind of get right. it, but be probably a little bit pissed off as well. Okay, here we go. Person A has murdered five children and they've done their time. <laughs> Sounds crazy. Or they're in custody serving a sentence for the murder of five young children. Whilst in custody, some years later, there's an unsolved case with remarkable similarities to the initial five of course the police with their investigative you know skills and research are going to think hang on a sec this guy's done five similar mo similar location perhaps and they go into jail and they question him and they decide that there's enough evidence to put that person before the courts it goes to trial when they and panel a jury of 12, as far as the jury are concerned, this person has never committed any crime ever. And certainly not in relation to that type that they are now being tried for. So there are two schools of thought. Mm. Some people may say, as in this particular case that we've been talking about over three weeks, that he you know, based on the, the dramatic similarities, which we all 
as humans and using common sense and logic think that just stands to reason he just didn't do this to one person and that's what the police are thinking the defense counsel would be would be saying look this that's not relevant every case is has to sort of stand up on its own so when the jury are impaneled for the murder of let's say a sixth young person crime of similarity they're not allowed to know about the previous five can you imagine if at the beginning of the trial the judge said to the jury oh and by the way he's already done this five times before it's a lay down misere isn't it he'd be found guilty well i think i mean if you can provide a character witness then you sure as shit should be able to explain you know, crimes the person has committed before. It just needs to be presented in such a way that is, you know, contextual and impartial. Mm. But there's, mm. no, there's no way that doesn't affect... I agree, uh, Paul. The and case. there are certain situations in a court of law whereby the prosecution can introduce evidence of prior similar convictions or things that they've been charged with. One of them is, and I don't quite... And I think it's quite rare, but if the defendant somehow or some way folds into the trial that he has never ever done anything like that before, that's when they can get him or her. However, also in in court these days, the offender does not have to go into the dock if you go into the dock, you can be cross-examined by both sides. However, what they can do is make what's called an unsworn statement, which means they can actually, within reason, approach the jury as though they're an eminent barrister or QC and they can stand before a jury, as von Einen could have done, and they can basically bullshit Till the cows come home, they can say whatever they like and it can't be cross-examined. So it's called an unsworn statement. It's sort of that last summing up appeal to say, look, I actually am a really, really good guy. But Paul, coming back to the other situation, imagine if the jury find the defendant guilty of who's who has murdered five young kids and they charge him and they then find him guilty of the sixth and imagine if he didn't do the sixth murder. There's a miscarriage of justice. And that has happened. When mm. people have been brought before and the police have been incredibly keen and overzealous and they charge the guy because they just they just in their hearts know it's him, but it turns out 20, 30 years later, oh, we made a mistake. I mean, that's, well, that's yeah. so complicated. Yeah, it's it's... It's complicated. It's less complicated when the person has already killed several young men. But I, I see, I see your point. But at this point, look, Dad, they had, I believe, three suspects. Yep. Um, now they had, they had Mr. B, Mr. R, both of whom we've talked about, both who kind of testified to being involved. I believe Mr. B was a more compelling suspect because he kind of admitted about, admitted to you know going along. Mm. with these things and not actually participating. The most interesting suspect for me uh, used to be a doctor who became very well known in Adelaide's gay scene. Yep. And in 2011, various kind of uh, publications 
effectively outed him. Mm. And I believe he's passed away now, but he was a doctor. He was accused of sexually assaulting some people back uh, in the 80s. I think they liked him as a suspect partly because of that, but also because of the kind of medical expertise required to make mm. the incisions. And Because yep. uh, yeah, one of our victims was found with a bizarre mark in their abdomen and it was sewed up, so they were looking for him. And I know there was another suspect who was also... I believe worked in a building that had a, like an empty top floor and they only found a mattress up there and they thought that'd be a perfect place for, to take these people mm. and to carry these things out. But nothing ever kind of coalesced. I mean, all because co- this has happened back in the 80s. So a lot of these people, you know, left journals or left testimony or kind of said things on their deathbeds. But by that point, the trail's gone cold. So there's nothing they can use in court. Mm. So it's one of those tricky things where... Now it sort of has become mythologized, you know? Mm. Mm. No, it's fascinating, Paul. But um, in Sydney, within the last two years, there was a plastic surgeon Mm. who used to um, rape patients whilst they were under anaesthetic. So, you know, to compartmentalize and come up with the idea that all sexual deviants, psychopaths, murdering scum are from the other side of the tracks is a fallacy. Von Einem was an accountant. Some of the accomplices were chiropractors, doctors, and some of these doctors that you know used to treat um, people with drug addictions would simply give them drugs for in exchange for for sex. But it all all took place in their places of work. Mm. There is a doctor's surgery in Adelaide that was used by one of the um, people that we're discussing, Paul, and they found out later on, and a lot of the staff did not know this, but there was a hidden cellar beneath the the building. Have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Yeah, and they they know that that is one of the places that these people used to take victims to that were very quiet, and they could, you know, do what they wanted to do. And I think that... I'm just thinking, I'm trying to sort of, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'll tell you how how badly this story, this three-part has affected me, Paul. And again, it's a weird thing to admit to everyone. But prior to today's episode, bearing in mind I do have jet lag, just got back from Thailand. When I went to log on to the computer at the beginning of this podcast, I started to put, I wrote Baron in, I started to put his name. What do you mean? You know how you have to put a password in? Oh, God. So you entered Von Einem's first name as Correct. a password? Yep. Isn't that terrible? I, I did it subconsciously. Mm. So, yes, it's had a bit of a, you know. All right. Look, in, yeah, there's one thing I want to close out with, Dad. You mentioned, and you've mentioned quite a few times, that it's believed the family were involved in over 100 crimes. Over 150. Yeah, now... I haven't been able to find any evidence of any of these things because all I've found is evidence of the five murders that took place and the conviction for one of them. So where are you getting this large figure from and where did it come from? Uh, Well, it came from a professor at the University of Adelaide who'd done a lot of research and I don't have his name off the top of my head, but it's it's in black and white. But what one must consider, Paul, is that that over a fairly long period of time, the number of missing people missing young boys, teenagers, people with drug problems, homeless kids, um, you know, male prostitutes, 
the number of them that have gone missing and have never ever been found. And it's a statistical fact that a percentage of the missing people every year in this country, which by reason would mean all countries, um, have met foul, foul ends. And there are so many people in this country, in this, this land of, of, of Australia, that have been murdered and their bodies have been buried. It's not that difficult, more so now, of course. But if you go out and decide to commit a crime that involves murder or death by misadventure, where things are going and something terrible happens, um, and then you panic, if you can manage to get the body, you know, or dismember the body to make it easier. I mean, you know, I, I've thought about these things and, you know, it's just if you can get rid of a body um, and live with that terrible thing f- for the rest of your life, and some people do, but some people crack and they just need to tell someone. It might be in their dying their dying moment or a moment where they think they're going to die. They might just need that sense of telling someone so they feel as though they've sort of alleviated some of the lifelong guilt but there are just so many people that have gone missing and they've been murdered and you know that's one of the terrible things about missing people for the families they they don't know there's no closure but if you could somehow sort of weirdly dig up the earth and sieve through it you'd find things and you'd find things in rivers and in the bottom of dams and remember that amazing story paul about mr asia and those scuba divers in london in england were were diving in this this sort of quarry and they found the headless body Mm. inside the jaguar it hadn't gone all the way to the bottom where it would have remained forever It, it had got caught on a ledge and these scuba divers come across this car and inside it's a headless body you know that could have remained unsolved so a lot of these things come to light accidentally. Someone discovers something. Look at the farmer in this story, Paul. Yeah, the, the backburning. But, I mean, by this rationale, are you trying to say that eventually the truth will come out because somebody no. will find a clipping in, and you, you don't it, think it's ever going to come eventually out? Eventually it can come out. But it might not necessarily. Might not. But, I mean, when you say, you know, when you say that a professor is attributing, you know, 150 crimes to, to this group of, well, we don't even know if it's a group. Like, how do we, how can we know enough is it not irresponsible to say things like that, um, giving people false hope? You know, let's say a male relative went missing in the 80s and you assumed he just wandered off and then some professor goes, yeah, he was probably cut up and raped by the family. I mean, what? that, that seems irresponsible to me. I mean, there's a reason you don't just make these claims without hard evidence, isn't there? Oh, well, it's not, it's not a matter of hard evidence. It's a matter of simple mathematics and statistics. For every hundred people that go missing... Okay, of which there are thousands and thousands a year just in Australia, let alone the mm-hmm. world, a proportion of those people are never found. Now, there are some people that never want to be found and they will assume a new identity. Having said that, it's really difficult to do these days unless you're mm-hmm. working for cash. Um, in fact, that reminds me of the guy that murdered uh, Anita Cobby and he was on the run which we'll cover in hopefully in the next pod, you know, sometime down the track. But he mm. was arrested a few weeks ago and he managed to evade the police. Incredibly clever guy. 
but one of the things, one of the ways they do it is that they just work for cash. But he, he, he was an escapee. Then you've got people that just don't want to, they just want to opt out of society. But then you've got genuine people, a mathematical statistical number of people per hundred that have met foul ends and will never be found. Imagine if you do something to someone and you take them out to sea and you tie something around them. Even those people occasionally get found. But the chances are that if you can put them at the bottom of the ocean for, for some time, you, the chances of finding them are, are slim. Well, look, I guess I'm curious to see whether anything comes out over the following years. It, it seems extremely unlikely. What does seem likely is that people will continue to visit Adelaide and hear about this thing called the family and then leave kind of puzzled. That's kind of where we were at when we first rocked up and did our live show, you know, a couple of years back at the Mm. Rhino Room in Adelaide. And it's not dimmed my love for Adelaide at all. It has added this odd layer. It's, Mm. It's made it a very textured city. And if you visit Adelaide and you... You know, and someone sits you down and tells you something, please let us know because we are just dying to figure out what was going on here. Well, we may not have solved what happened, but we have explored it and we hope we've been able to shed some light on it for you. We'll be back later this week with an episode of Loose Ends to kind of lighten things up a bit. And we will be back next Tuesday with more Loose Units, The Shadow Files. In the meantime, stay safe and we'll see you soon. Bye, everyone. Cheerio. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.